new world starting tomorrow. Yeah. <laughs> Jeez, what a wild four years it has been. Anyway, we have uh, we have some people who are new to our group here. So maybe we could go around and say hello and introduce ourselves briefly. And uh, let's see, say your name and where you are, where you're dialing in from tonight. And then like um, a little background on your uh, practice and study or history or your group affiliation. We have a, a bunch of people from the wisdom seat tonight that I'd like to welcome. <clears throat> And uh, maybe I'll start. Not, my name is Derek Collini, and um, I'm dialing in from Sleepy Hollow tonight, which is in uh, uh, New York State. It's actually a real place. And I live uh, across the street from the Sleepy Hollow Cemetery, where the Headless Horseman lives. And um, I... Uh, I'm a student of Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche, even though he's dead, but I met him before he was dead, fortunately, back in 19, I became his student in 1976. And um, I'm, I'm a very lazy student of his. So uh, many years later, I'm still struggling to understand Shamacha and Vipassana. Other people are doing much more advanced topics, but I'm still, like obsessed with shamatha and vipassana. And um, in addition to the Vimei Shedra, which um, if you haven't looked at the website, <clears throat> I encourage you to do that, to see what that is about. And uh, I think I uh, offer mountains and oceans of thanks to Morgan Sandquist here who created and maintained this website. Thank you, Morgan. Yay. It's really quite a treasure, I think. Um, and uh, in addition to that, I, <clears throat> I teach with this local group here that's dedicated to the teachings of Chumper and she called uh, the Westchester Meditation Center with my wife and uh, Jean Bacher. And then I also teach frequently, or when they happen, I, I tend to teach at the Profound Treasury Retreats in Maine that are led by Judy Leaf and Carolyn Gimian and a host of other wild characters, shady characters. And um, so that's me. So uh, why don't you just start uh, the, the person in the upper left-hand corner? Why don't you go first? I, I don't think know. that's me. I don't me? think it's. I don't think it's the same for everybody. That's why he's <laughs> laughing. <laughs> so it, I'll I'll do it. So in my screen, uh, Henrietta's on the upper left corner. And uh, remember to unmute yourselves when you do this. <laughs> Thank you. Hi, everybody. Um, my name's Henrietta, and uh, I'm in New York City, and I'm a, 
a member of Nalanda Bodhi, New York, and a student of Sokchen Ponop Rinpoche. Um, I used to be a member of Shambhala, New York for many years. Took my refuge in Bodhisattva vows there. And I'm happy um, to be, what is it like, I guess, now uh, my second or third year, I guess, attending Derek's Rimeshedra. Happy to be back. Thank well, you. thank you. Thank you and welcome. Uh, Brock, you're next, next on my screen. Hi, uh, I'm Rob, Rob Pritchard. I'm coming to you from East Harlem in New York City. I started studying with Derek, I think back in 2006 or seven, somewhere around there. And I was there for a bunch of years and I'm with Henrietta now over at Nalanda Bodhi. Ponlap uh, Rinpoche is my teacher. And, uh, but I'm, I'm, I'm not a, a real, you know, complicated Dharma person. I, I just like to sit shamatha. That's pretty much my practice, even though they give me other things to do. I, I'm, they're a little too advanced. I kind of just like to sit and, you know, so I'm here with, with Derek trying to figure this out too. Well, thank you, Rob. Welcome. Nice to see you again. Yeah. Nice to see you too. That goes way back. Oh my God. Yeah. And, uh, um, I just noticed, so Liz, who is uh, the coordinator of the Westchester Meditation Center, put a link in the uh, chat box <clears throat> for a talk that uh, Judy Leaf is giving this Sunday at the Westchester Meditation Center. I'd like to warmly welcome and harshly in, uh, encourage you to, to attend that. Please come turn on your computer. <laughs> And uh, Brock Thorne from Utah, man, you're next. Hi. Uh, yeah, I uh, probably my most experiences with uh, Profound Treasury Retreat in Maine. Also been at the one in Creston uh, in Utah. I'm out here in the boondocks. Uh, they scratch their head when, they, when I say Buddhism. They don't know much about that stuff. And uh, uh, last, uh, I was with this Rhyme Shedra group last uh the last one, and uh, learned a lot about it there. That's been, that was something else. Uh, uh, Rob, you said deep. Yep, it was that. <laughs> and uh, but uh, learning a bit and enjoyed a lot. I meditate a bunch and have for a long time. And uh, been a follower of Trumper Rinpoche's for many moons. And uh, uh, nice to see y'all. Welcome, Brock. Nice to see you. Hey, the next on uh, my screen is a, an, a very uh, elusive gentleman who is famous from the Sherlock Holmes books. And uh, his, he's changed his first name to try to present something new, but it's Bill Moriarty. Okay. Welcome, Bill. Thanks. <laughs> Saw that coming. Yeah, so I'm in, uh, yeah, this, I'm new to the group. I'm in Pennsylvania. And I'm part of the Wisdom Seat group. So I've been studying with um, Michael Carroll, and which is a, essentially studying Trump Rinpoche teaching. So I've been doing that for maybe 10 or 15 years. And I got to take the Bodhisattva vow recently. 
And I don't feel like I understand Vipassana, so I was uh, happy to see this class become available. Cool. Welcome. And Emily, who's our tech host for these. Thank you for that very much. Um, hey, I'm Emily. I um, am in Braintree, Massachusetts, having recently moved here from Sleepy Hollow as well. Um, I studied Buddhism academically in college at Middlebury College, so wasn't practicing, but did go pretty deep on an academic level with a number of elements of it. Um, and I'm relatively new to having my own practice. Um, kind of started sitting meditation just like through my mindfulness apps a few years ago and then kind of made the jump into uh, a more dharmic Buddhist practice a little over, I guess about a year and a half ago now. And I've going, been going more and more deep with it, mostly through Westchester Meditation Center and Rimishedra courses. Um, and I absolutely go crazy for the, um, the philosophy and the reading and the wisdom side of things. Um, and I'm, I'm actively working on getting my, my meditation practice sort of up to even out with the wisdom Prajna side of things. So that's, that's what I'm working on. So um, very excited that I think this class will kind of bring, bring it all together for me in some ways. So, yeah. Cool. Thank you. Welcome. And thanks again for hosting us. Sure. Jane G. Can, uh, can you pronounce, I don't want to mess up your last name. So that's okay. It's, it's not that common. It's uh, Jane. <laughs> so I can mess up that. <laughs> uh, Grenier. Grenier. Uh, cool. Brooklyn, uh, specifically Greenpoint, New York, and uh, a couple of years of uh, discipline sitting. Um, but when you were meeting uh, Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche, I was introduced to Transcendental Meditation that same year. So I've dabbled along the way. But uh, on the past, for, for a couple of years, a member of Shambhala, New York, in diaspora or whatever um and very excited to take this course i am a bookish person and can't read enough um and i think uh kevin strader who's been kind enough to be my meditation instructor and spiritual friend in shambhala is tired of me asking but but really what's the difference between shamatha and vipassana so well. <laughs> now over to you sir <laughs> that, that is the that is the question. Yeah, yeah. I th I think she's talking to you, Kevin. Yeah, yeah, and uh, Jane and I I was just reading some, and I I don't know. I really have no idea. <laughs> but uh, welcome, welcome, Jane, I, we and welcome, Kevin. So I'll go from I'll take it from there. Yes, uh, I'm in Brooklyn, New York, as 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 Jane and uh, Cynthia. Uh, so um. I've been with the Shambhala Posse for a good number of years. Uh, currently, I'm organizing, I'm the organizer of the Learn to Meditate program. So I really should know what Vipassana is about. I'm very, very happy to be pursuing that, thanks to you, Derek. Uh, here in Brooklyn, it's uh, part of the um, Shambhala diaspora, we started a uh, neighborhood, Shambhala neighborhood. 
uh, here with Jane and Cynthia uh, Spencer is also here of that group. So oh. we're carrying the flame. And Jill, Jill Reiner, good to see you too. Yeah. Yeah. All right, Brooklyn. Cool. <laughs> Shout out, Brooklyn. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, really glad to be here and see you again, Derek. And uh, onward we go. Yeah, cool. Welcome. Likewise, great to see you again. And welcome to you and Jane. And since you pointed out a couple of other book Brooklynites, let's go to Jill Rainier. Rainier. Hello. Thank Hi. you. It's wonderful to see everyone. Um, I am a rank beginner. Um, I have. Uh, I have. I had a very solitary practice for many years, a solitary sitting practice, um, because I discovered meditation um, when I was trying to cope with migraine pain and uh, addiction issues. And I found it to be extremely helpful. Um, and then through a series of rather uncanny events, I, uh, found, I discovered Chogyam Trungpa's teachings. And that led me to the Shambhala Center um, after great hesitation, I took refuge there about um, three months before the center closed and mm -hmm. the whole thing collapsed. So then I started uh, coming to Rime Shedri and have enjoyed it immensely. Um, but I'm glad to be here and I am very, very fresh. <laughs> I know very little. Thank you. Well, welcome, Jill. Great to see you again. And let's see. Let's go to the other Brooklynite, Cynthia. Okay. Thank you. Um, so I, uh, let's see, I started studying with Trungpa Rinpoche about three years after Derek did. I think you said 76. For me, it was 79. I uh, headed out to Boulder and landed in Boulder, uh, what was it, in the fall of that year, and uh, hung out there for a couple of years, getting a little bit steeped in that situation, um, and in Europa as well. Um, it was actually, in some ways, the Dharma arts that first drew me to the whole situation, um, but I took refuge in Bodhisattva vows there at that time, and I guess I'm still around. Um, <laughs> Uh, and by the way, if there's anybody else that's in Brooklyn that wants to join into our little deleg, um, it meets monthly on Zoom, so uh, it's safe and sound. Go Brooklyn! <laughs> <laughs> um, so you can let us know uh, if you're interested, if there's anybody here in Brooklyn. I don't know if there's anyone in the Brooklyn area that's, that's not yet connected with us, but there might be a few. I think cool. you can inquire through the uh, website, the uh, Shambhala website. Cool. Thank you, Cynthia. Back. Welcome. Good to see you again. You started with uh, the remix shader in 2004 at its first class, right? That is true. I, I just course. like to mention that I'm a lifer in the um, remix shader. Oh, right. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's cool. Uh, let's see who's in my screen here next. Al, Al San Valentin. Hi. Hi. <laughs> it's a couple familiar faces. It's really nice. 
So um, I'm, I'm in Philadelphia. We're in Philadelphia. Um, we, as I've been sitting for about five years. Um, we started with this group in South Philly that we still meet every Thursday on Zoom. Andrew's here. Hi, Andrew. Um, I've gone to the Profound Treasury Retreat a couple times, and I guess I'm helping with the wisdom seat now. Uh, I entered into this through the practice. I'm really excited to get into more of like the um, bookish part of it. We get into more of the history. It's pretty, the history, I think it's like really hard for me to get into because there's just so many, so much of it. So I figured this would be a great place to start and trace that, like the sitting practice back a bit. So it'd be cool to have that context. Cool. Thanks for joining us. Welcome. And Brian. Hey everyone. My name is Brian. My last name is very long. It's Westenheiser. Um, much like Al, I'm located in Philadelphia. I've been practicing for about six years now. Um, started through a yoga studio in Philadelphia, which uh, led me to Michael Carroll and the Wisdom Seat. And I guess it was recommended maybe like three or four years ago to check out the Profound Treasury Retreat. Um, so I think we've been to about three of those so far. Um, just a lot of practice. I enjoy the reading and especially the learning aspect. So I'm kind of excited to kind of trace the history. Cool, neat. Thanks for joining us, welcome. Let's see, Lindsay, Lindsay Von Wagenen. Hello everyone, I'm Lindsay and I'm calling from uh, beautiful South Florida where I'm oh, visiting my father. And uh, usually I live in Manhattan, but I'm down here for some time. And I have not been able to be in the Rime Shedra for a, a couple of years because of my work schedule, but I'm happy to be back. And uh, I have a Zen practice. I came to Buddhism through Zen Buddhism, um, part of the Mountains and Rivers Order, Zen Mountain Monastery. And um, it's a really a nice balance um, with Zen because... Uh, in Zen, they don't give you a lot of instruction about meditation. And so I really kind of enjoyed this kind of complementary uh, um, kind of the details and the, you know, the structure of the path aspect um, that we cover. So I'm happy to be back. Well, yeah, it's great to see you again. Welcome back. Thanks for joining us, Lindsay. Next I have is uh, Mary Beth Keene. Hi, I'm Mary Beth Keene. And I, Welcome. <laughs> it's nice to see new faces. Um, I started sitting with the Westchester Buddhist Center in 2016. And I think Rime Shedra in maybe 2017 or 2018. I'm happy to be here. I love just studying old Dharma. I just love it. So I'm glad that I'm not alone in that <laughs> and that I have such a great teacher in that. So thank you all for being here. Welcome. Thanks for joining us again. You seem to be surrounded by like-minded soul boxes, <laughs> at least. <laughs> Let's see, Morgan Sandquist, our webmaster. Hi, um, I uh, am part of what's left of the Shambhala Center, the Diaspora. 
uh, I'd been there uh, for probably about uh, probably like 17 years or so uh, in, in Shedra, not from quite the beginning, but close. Uh, took my uh, refuge in Bodhisattva vows at Shambhala um, way back um, and have basically been doing Derek's classes since then. Um, and a few retreats and other stuff, but mostly Derek's classes. Uh, yeah, that's it. Morgan and I took refuge together. All right. We took, we took Bodhisattva vows together too. Yeah, but when we when we did refuge, we were part of the three guermes. Oh, right, right. Guermes? Guermes, yeah, that's right. <laughs> cool. A, Morgan and I were two of them. Yeah. That's right, changeless. Cool, neat. Thank you, Morgan. Uh, Barbara Brooks. Hi, everybody. Um, I'm glad to be back again. I'm... Um, I'm in um, Manhattan, New York City, Upper West Side, and I've been uh, doing these classes um, with Derek for quite a few years now, the Green Shedra, and I um, used to be a member of Shambhala, and um, I've gone to some of the profound treasury retreats, and um, it's so ha- so happy to see many of you who I haven't seen for a while. I'm looking forward to the class. Cool. Welcome. Great to see you again. Thanks. Thanks for joining us again, Barbara, and for everything that you do. Uh, Lori. Hi. Hi. <laughs> I'm Lori Abbott. I'm calling from Ridgefield, Connecticut. Um, I was introduced originally to Buddhism by a Catholic nun when I was doing volunteer work at an AIDS ward in New York. And she kept giving me books of Pema Children and Stephen Levine, and and it really made sense to me. But I did my own practice for about 10, 15 years until I hit a wall with uh, a professional situation. And I decided I would go wherever Pema Children's teacher, you know, wherever her center was in New York, because I was living in New York. And uh, so I found Shambhala. I stayed there for, you know, up until it closed pretty much. Did the refuge and uh, Bodhisattva vows, did the Shambhala vow, um, and then didn't know what to do. And I was pointed towards Derek. And so now I've been studying with Derek the last couple of years, which has been great because it's all, you know, it's all the stuff that I felt like I was missing of the, the classical Buddhist, you know, even though sometimes I feel like I have no idea what's going on. It's, I find that it sinks in, you know, just keep going. <laughs> so I'm glad to be here. That's great. I'm glad you're here. Uh, thanks and welcome. Uh, Anya. Yeah, hi. I'm Anya. I'm also in Brooklyn. All right. And yeah, yeah, I've been interested in Buddhism since I was a teenager. Started reading like Alan Watts and stuff like that. And um, also uh, always knew or in the 70s knew about Trumpa Rinpoche and Naropa because my mom knew poets who were involved there. But I never thought I'd be involved with that. <laughs> Um, I always thought I would end up doing Zen, I guess. Um, 
but just by a series of, you know, weird circumstances, I ended up um, going to the Shambhala Center in New York and started taking classes there, I guess in 2006. And it was great. And then I also took my refuge in Bodhisattva vows there. And, um, and then I started with Rime Shedra, I guess, maybe three or four years ago, something like that. And I'm really happy to be doing this with you, Derek. It's great. So, Likewise. Welcome back. Thank you. Uh, Brent. My uh, call, my uh, co-partner here, Brent Kite. Well, my name is Brent, and I live in Brooklyn. All right, <laughs> two more Brooklynites. And I started studying Buddhism about ten years ago with the organization that Lindsay mentioned, the Mountains and River Order, and I'm still a student there. And I've been studying with Derek for about four or five years now, which has been great. And I took the refuge vows with Judy at the Profound Treasury Retreat two years ago. Cool. Thank you, Brent. Welcome. Good to see you. Liz. Liz Greeny. Hi. Um, I'm Liz. I live in um, Katona, New York, which is like an hour north of the city. Um, I've been... Uh, with Westchester Meditation Center for since since uh, 2016, like Mary Beth, <laughs> except she came in a little before me. <laughs> um, and I've been studying at Rime Shadra for a couple of years now, and I love it. And uh, Liz, again, is the coordinator of the Westchester Meditation Center now, which is the new name for the Westchester Buddhist Center for some strange reason. Anyway, welcome. Nice to see you. Thank you. And next is Eileen Mahowald. Wow, that's very impressive. (laughs) (laughs) All those models. I'm from Northborough, Massachusetts. And um, let's see. So I came to um, the mindfulness practice about 27 years ago with John Kabat-Zinn, who was in my area. And um, so I dropped that for several years and then I just began reading and um, I find the Dharma to be like candy, so I love it. And I have self-studied for a long time and I just follow title after title after title after title. And I really don't have a teacher per se, although I show up at teachings and I really um, enjoy retreats when I can. Um, And I have taken the refuge and the Bodhisattva vows um, in Saco, Maine. So it's excellent to be here. I'm excited. Oh, great to see you again. Welcome back. Thanks. And Iswar Magison. Hi, hi everyone. Uh, my name Welcome. is Welcome. Yeah, thanks. Uh, Izwar. Um, I'm from Mount uh, Kisco, New York. Um, I've been practicing for about five or six years, um, and I've been coming to the Westchester uh, Meditation Center for about three years now. And it's uh, good to be here with all of you. Yeah, great to see you again, Iswar. Thank you for joining us and welcome back. Eric Strom, old stalwart. Uh, 
Hi, Hi. this is Eric, Eric from Astoria, Queens, and a um, longtime member of the New York Shambhala Center. Uh, I guess I first started taking these classes in the fall of 2007, and I'm still trying to figure out what Shamatha and Vipassana <laughs> would be like to experience <laughs> or to understand them. So that's why I'm here. And um, yeah, good to see everybody. Welcome. Thanks for joining us. Great to see you again. Andrew. Hello, my name's Andrew. I'm from Philadelphia as well. Um, cool. Yeah. Our mutual friend, Michael Carroll, suggested I take this class at one point, not that long ago. I had no intention of taking a class or doing anything <laughs> of the sort, but I take his recommendations pretty seriously. So I was like, fine, let me clear my schedule for a bunch of Tuesdays in a row and figure that one out. And uh, But I'm very excited to be here with um, with everyone and uh, kind of... You know, it's been many years of, of meditating. I'm not really sure when I started, but maybe around like 10 years or, or something like that. And, um, you know, lots of Shambhala things and things like that in between and lots of non-Shambhala things also. Um, but it's nice to have, I guess, this kind of access where I kind of always discounted the Westchester Meditation Center, Buddhist Center, um, pre-COVID because of proximity. It wasn't really a, a feasible distance thing for my life. Um but now this is great. So we can do it online. It's really nice. And I can really just join in this way. So it's, um, you know, to have some classical study with people is uh, a new thing in my life as far as um, this type of avenue. So it's, um, it's good. It's good. I'm looking forward to it. Thank you for having me. Cool. Thank you for joining us. Welcome. Thank you. Thanks to Michael Carroll. That's yeah. neat. What a guy. Uh, Kevin. Another Kevin. Welcome. Hi, another Kevin from Brooklyn. Um, <laughs> Brooklyn again. So I've been with Shambhala for, I don't know, seven or eight years, perhaps. And um, I lose track. Uh, seems like ancient history. And it's a memory in a way, a nice one. But and I'm, I've uh, joined in with uh, Rene Shedra and Derek about maybe two and a half years ago. I'm not sure. Um, but been taking the classes with Derek uh, ever since. And uh, it's been it's been a great unfolding. So I'm looking forward to this as well. Cool. That's neat. Thank you. Oh, let's see. So many chords here in my practice table. It's bizarre. Did we hear from Neil? No. One more last but not least. Oh. And uh, we've got a video too. Hey, hey Neil. The attorney of our of the Rime Shedra. So if you have any gripes or complaints, you can keep them to yourself because I'm defended by Neil Stevenson. Yeah. <laughs> Welcome. You have to unmute yourself, sir. Esquire. 
Thank you very much. Uh, good to see everybody. And I'm very glad to be here. I am calling in from FC Bright, New Jersey. And I have been basically, you know, clinging to Derek for 20 odd years or something. I think I came to the Shambhala Center about uh, two decades ago. And my studying has essentially um, revolved around that. Um, so when Rima Shedra started, um, I gladly uh, followed on and um, continue to try to, to, to learn, but um, don't do a very good job of it, but looking to continue to try. Thanks. That's a good attitude. Humble, beginner's mind, always willing to continue to try, which is uh, basically the attitude that I have to all of this really uh, challenging but delightful material that we go through. So, uh, it's a little bit late already. Why don't we sit for just a little bit, like for 15 minutes, and then we'll go through the materials. And uh, maybe take a minute or two, check your email. I sent everybody a couple of documents that we'll go through tonight. I will show them on screen. But you may want to look at them uh, on your screen instead of how I, you know, that feeling. And I will ring this little bell here and we'll sit for a little bit.
So, I will uh, screen share the uh, chants that we do at the beginning of class. And feel free to either join us in those chants or not. circulated uh, this PDF. And here are the chants that we do. And uh, we do this one, the aspiration, three times. And then we do this once after it, the Manjushri supplication, which is a little chant that Trung Rinpoche had the Natan school many years ago when he created a school for advanced Buddhist studies. And then we'll do the dedication chants at the end of class. In order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood from my heart, I take refuge in the three jewels. In order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood from my heart, I take refuge in the three jewels. In order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood from my heart, I take refuge in the three jewels. Is that three times? In order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood from my heart, I take refuge in the three jewels. Whatever the virtues of the many fields of knowledge, all are steps on the path of omniscience. May these arise in the clear mirror of intellect. O Manjushri, please accomplish this. So uh, this course, it's meant to be a, it's meant to be a study of the practice of shamatha vipassana as presented by uh, the first Jamgun Kongchul, Jamgun Kongchul the Great, sometimes referred to uh, one of his more common names as Jamgun Kongchul Lodro Tae, which means limitless intellect. No yawning print. And um, wrote a compilation, a sort of an encyclopedia of the Dharma. Uh, one person translated it, the title of it as uh, the, the treasury of everything there is to know. And, uh, but it's been formally translated now into 10 large, like four to 500 page books or more. And it's called in that version in English, it's called the treasury of knowledge. It's a massive compilation of uh, the teachings of Buddhism as received and developed in the Tibetan tradition of Buddhism up until his life in the uh, 19th century. And um, in, in great detail, and in that book, which is largely um, sort of, let's say, half of the, the 10 volumes are Vajrayana, 
and the other half for things like history, uh, vows, um, the tenets of the different schools, logic, um, and there's a section on meditation. Uh, the Vajrayana portion is basically all meditation, but um, this is a chapter on meditation in general. And in that chapter, there's one section that's called uh, the basis of all samadhis, shamatha and vipassana. And that text was <clears throat> identified and pulled out as a very important presentation of the practice of shamatha vipassana in this time period by a, a teacher named Kempo Tsotram Gyamso Rimshe, who I studied with, whom I studied with for many years. He came to the United States, taught programs at Karma Chilling for 13 summers. And uh, before he came, he had uh, taught on this text. It's a short text, and he had uh, some uh, he developed translators and he had some of these translators translate this short text and they published it in a volume I should show you but I don't have handy of about 37 pages and um, it has an enormous uh, density to those 37 pages and it turns out that Chogyam Chungpa Rinpoche, the Vidyadara when he taught at Vajrayana, uh, when he taught seminary, he taught seminary programs every year, three-month programs as the major, major training ground for students to become Vajrayana students, starting in 1973 until before his death, ending in 1986, skipping uh, the year he was on retreat, 1977. And uh, turns out that he used this text, the Treasury of Knowledge, as one of his main texts in presenting the Dharma in those contexts. And if you look in the, the publication of the Treasury of Knowledge and compare that to what's in now the, uh, the compiled version of those seminary transcripts from 13 years, miraculously compiled and edited by Judy Leaf into three large volumes called the Profound Treasury of the Ocean of Dharma. You look through those, in particular the Vajrayana one, you'll see a great similarity what's, to what's in the Treasury of Knowledge. And somebody recently told me a story of uh, how Trung Rinpoche came upon using that text. He uh, apparently, at one point, when he lived in India, in uh, Dharamsala after the diaspora, after he escaped from Tibet in a rather harrowing way, barely uh, coming out alive, where there were like uh, at times ranging from two to three hundred people traveling with him, and many people uh, dying along the way and falling off and getting caught along the way. And I think about 15 of them made it to India the group that he made it to India and it's pretty miraculous that he went through that and uh, managed to make it out and, and come to the Western world. And uh, when he was living in uh, Dharamsala for a few years, he was uh, one of the teachers in what was called the Young Lama's Home. 
which was uh, or the, the young Tulku school, something like that, was the school for uh, the Tulkus that had come out that the Dalai Lama established there, Tulkus from all traditions. And Trump, he asked Trungpa Rinpoche to be one of the teachers. There were many teachers in that. And uh, during that time, Trungpa Rinpoche saw that somebody had a, a publication of the Treasury of Knowledge and uh, asked to borrow it from this other Lama. And uh, then happened to leave rather quickly thereafter and took it with him <laughs> and left that Lama note that said, I I'm sorry, I had to take it with me. <laughs> Thank you. So he made off with somebody's treasury of knowledge and uh, used that as the basis for his presentation. And so when you go through his presentation of material on Shamatha Vipassana, in particular at the seminaries, you see an enormous uh, resemblance to the, the material or the topics at least of what is presented in this text from the Treasury of Knowledge. Uh, so the goal of this course was to explore uh, the Treasury of Knowledge, this chapter on Shamatavapashna, how that was, uh, sorry, secondly the uh, sort of classical sources for that presentation and uh, including um, other extrapolations on <clears throat> some of the more obscure aspects of the practice that are included in that text provided by other teachers of the lineage. And you'll see what I mean by that in a few minutes. And then in particular, how that was presented in the West to us by Chogyam Champa in all of his many published works and a few works of his that are not yet published that I somehow have had access to. And so I've been compiling his uh, teachings on meditation for many years now, excerpting them from his books and uh, putting them into a streamlined format that's easy to read and sort of uh, highlights the, the material in it, the topics, the content of the material in what I find to be a very helpful way. And in a way that I can then arrange it so that it matches up to and supports Jungle Control's text. Unfortunately, in the process of doing that, I managed to compile a set of Trungpa Rinpoche's teachings on meditation that so far I just finished compiling the shamatha through the shamatha section a couple of hours ago. And so far that was um, a couple of hundred pages. So um, clearly that's not viable for this class. Uh, so what I uh, think I'm going to do in the next few days is I'll finish and I'll compile the Shamatha, the Vipassana section and the Shamatha Vipassana section of his teachings on meditation. And then I'll pull from that uh, the best selections for us to go through in this course and combine those with selections from classical sources on Vipassana and to some extent Shamatha. And, um, but in the classical sources, I really focused on Vipassana and uh, combine those together with John Kongchul's text.
So that's the plan. We'll see what the reality holds. <laughs> and uh, sorry, I'm charging. My computer needed charging. So maybe that's a little better sound. Less buzz. And um, so tonight, I thought we would go through the treasury of knowledge in a somewhat summary level, not all 37 pages, but go through first an outline of the text that's about four pages. And then the root verses, John Green Conchal's treasury of knowledge is written in a, a very traditional style where they would write root uh, very uh, sort of pithy essence of the material, the topic, the text, first in verse, in uh, sort of poetic verse. And so he did that for the entire treasury of knowledge. He wrote the verses and then he went back and he wrote commentaries to all of them. So it has this root text and commentary format in every section, including this treasury, uh, this uh, Shamatha Vipassana section. And so tonight I thought we would go through the root text, which uh, gives the sort of pith of the subject of uh, Shamatha Vipassana, the union, and some supplementary topics. And for starters, I thought just a glance at, um, here's the compilation so far. Can you guys all see this? No. Let's see, uh, here we go. Can you see this now? Can you see a document called Practice of Shamatha Vipassana? Yep. Okay, cool. So this is the table of contents of it. I shared that with you in case, just to sort of show you the material in it and uh, the sources that I've put together. I don't know, just to make up for the fact that I don't have the finished product tonight. <laughs> so a lot of stuff from the profound treasury, a lot of stuff from mindfulness in action, and many, many other books of his. And so you'll sort of see from this why I uh, wanted to address the issue of copyright and, and, uh, and the related issues of uh, supporting the copyright holder and the publication publication of these teachings and asked you all to buy a number of books or some books I actually asked you to buy one and uh, many people interpreted that to mean a few which is great you know I listed I think five or six really what I consider to be really amazingly core texts on Shamatha Vipassana and so uh, some of you have had all of those and I recommended others but anyway so that's the Eric scheme yes was there just one of those that you wanted us to get of all those books or were we supposed to get all of them I'm I'm, I'm unclear now yeah I, I was hoping you would get at least one of them and uh, starting in order so if you didn't have the profound treasury volume one I was hoping you would get that. If you had that, I was hoping you would get mindfulness in action. If you had both of those, uh, the, uh, what is it called? The path without goal. I see. So they're kind of ranked by order of importance. The, the path is the goal. Yes, they are. Okay. Yeah. 
It'd be Thank ideal you. to get a bunch of them, but you know that's the stretch for some people. So at least get starting off with the Profound Treasury Volume One. Thanks. Thank you for clarifying that. So <clears throat> I was going to pair that with selections from the classic presentations. So John Conchal's Treasury of Knowledge and um, excerpts from the Royal Seal of Mahamudra, which was on the list. And then you'll see in the text that, of John Conchal and in many other texts, there's references over and over again to the sort of source presentations of, of the practice of Shamatha Vipassana in texts starting from the Buddha and through the masters of the Buddhist tradition in India and then in Tibet. Maitreya, the future Buddha, wrote five texts and handed them to a Sangha to have published in this world since he didn't have uh, access to publishers here on earth. And so he has some root sections, presentations on Shamatha and Vipassana. Kamala Shila, famous character, brought Buddhism to Tibet along with his teacher Shantarakshita and wrote summaries of meditations called the Bhavanakrama, stages of meditation, three versions. Very key classic text where he covers uh, the whole preparation for meditation, including uh, accumulating merit, loving kindness, compassion, and then chapters on Shamatha and Vipassana. Um, other gentlemen, Maitripa, Tsongkhapa in the Tibetan tradition, Tashi Namjel, famous uh, Mahamudra text called the Moonbeams of Mahamudra, which is what another source text for Trungpa Rinpoche in <clears throat> teaching in the West. And then a text by uh, Shama Rinpoche, Boundless Wisdom. Um, so anyway, you'll see the, the list of texts that I will now pick and choose the top ones from to create a viable set of readings for us to focus in on. And, I, and I, I've heard that people, as we went around, people are generally feel uh, some familiarity with shamatha. And so we'll focus uh, the balance of our time, I think, on Vipassana. However, I think you'll find it helpful to go through shamatha in this way as well. So here's the uh, outline of this text, The Stages of Meditation of Shamatha Vipassana from the Treasury of Knowledge by John McConchell. And when you see an outline, this, outline like this, it's helpful just to first scroll through the whole thing to get the lay of the land by looking at the larger categories. So first we have the necessity of practicing samadhi in order to understand the Dharma, in order to address the root situation of our world of suffering, we need to practice meditation, samadhi. Samadhi is basically of two types, shamatha and vipassana, and those encompass all the other different types of meditation in the world, according to the Buddhist tradition, can be uh, correlated to either, either shamatha or vipassana. Then he goes through shamatha in a traditional way, prerequisites, I'm sorry, backing up. Um, I was going to do the large categories. Shamatha, Vipassana, the union of the two, 
and then some supplementary issues. So those are the main sections. And to go back, we have discussion of samadhi in general, identification of what shamatha and vipassana are, their nature, their etymology, the necessity of practicing both of them, and the order, the preferred order of practice for them. And shamatha, as with uh, most practices that are presented, there's first the prerequisites. What do we do in order to practice shamatha successfully? We, in the West, we all just sort of jump in. And gradually, as we go through the practice, we basically fill in what are considered to be the traditional uh, essentials that we don't already have, most of us have. Um, well, I don't know about few desires, but we have access to you know, food and clothing and shelter so we can practice. We're fortunately uh, have a precious human birth where we're uh, fortunate and well-favored to live in the way that we do. The prerequisites, having few desires, being content, forsaking a successive activity. If you're going to watch TV all the time, you're probably not going to succeed in meditating. You have to have some time for not doing anything else. Pure ethics not transgressing the vows, not causing harm, and um, giving up discursive thoughts, you know, giving up endless plans and dreams. Many of these are very hard to do, and, you know, you might never practice shamatha if you try to do these fully before beginning practice, being content. How many of us are really content? How many of us have given up discursive thoughts? So we dive in anyway, and the practice hopefully helps with gathering these prerequisites. The progressive class, classification of shamatha. There's different sort of types of shamatha. There's shamatha of the desire realm. The world's, the cosmology in the Buddhist tradition is that there's three realms of existence. There's the desire realm, which consists of animals and humans and a bunch of uh, supernatural creatures, gods, um, ghosts, things like that that uh, we don't normally see or encounter normally. Uh, and then there's two other realms. One is called the form realm, where beings who uh, are highly advanced and uh, have uh, li live in a, a world of sort of uh, pure form ethereal world of pure form and then there's the formless realm beings that have no form just mind it's an interesting idea so there's a, a practice that leads to that and it's based upon uh, having uh, gaining rebirth in the in the form and formless realms and those are the concentrations and, and, the, and the formless absorptions um, respectively and then there's the absorption of cessation, which is uh, liberation, meditation. The way to meditate, he goes through the posture. We're all familiar with, pretty familiar with the posture. He goes through what are this traditional way of presenting the objects of observation, which is a really interesting list because uh, hopefully if you're like me, you're looking for, well, where's the breath? <laughs> How come that's not on the list? 
uh, am I on the wrong list? Am I in the wrong class? Am I doing the wrong meditation? <laughs> we have a, an interesting idea of what the objects for our observation are. We'll go through that a little bit. The breath is in here. In uh, both objects that render skillful and purifying afflictions. And the progression of the actual meditation. Settling the mind with a concrete support. So first meditating on concrete. Always good to start with something solid. And then uh, settling the mind without concrete. Something like the breath. And then settling the mind in the essential nature. And uh, this is the general progression of meditation that we don't often talk about explicitly. but sort of happens naturally over time. Sort of a big secret is, is we start with the breath. And if we are successful, we head towards... Uh, uh, basically meditating on the nature of mind. If we're not successful, we we end up meditating on the nature of thoughts. Well, not the nature of thoughts, but we meditate on thoughts, our habitual patterns. The, tr the experiences that arise in meditation, um, what are the five uh, obstacles or faults? Laziness, discursiveness, agitation, so forth. What are the antidotes to those? Most of us are probably familiar with these traditional presentations. What are the nine stages of shamatha? What are the six powers that take us through those nine stages? I'm going to focus on that as what I find to be the most helpful way of making our way through the rest of these. And then the four mental engagements, which is a lesser known scheme. And then there's uh, what it, what's called the traditional of the oral instructions, and Kongchul uh, presents the stages of the five experiences of the waterfall and the fast-moving river and so forth. You'll, most of us will uh, recognize those. Measure of accomplishment of shamatha and its benefits. The way it's accomplished, what are the signs? These three experiences, bliss, clarity, and non-thought are the signs of accomplishment and the necessity. Now, without shamaja, you can't go anywhere. Basically, you don't leave home without it. Vipassana. What are the prerequisites to study with a wise person? Unfortunately, you're in this class instead. I'm sorry about that. But there are many other, many other people out there who are very wise and I urge you and encourage you to find one of them and study with many of them, actually, not just one. Many of them live in books these days, which is very helpful. And then to seek the view, to, to understand the view. Now, they're not talking about, like, uh, the view of the Hudson or sunset or something like that. In Buddhism, when we talk about the view, we mean the understanding of the nature of reality. So cultivating an understanding of the nature of reality by listening extensively and reflecting accordingly. And this refers to what are known as the three stages of prajna, or the development of transcendent knowledge, hearing or listening, which is uh, interpreted as studying the teachings, either by listening to teachers teach or by reading, and then secondly, by reflecting, contemplating, thinking about, 
the meaning of what one has heard, challenging it, seeing if it actually makes sense, trying to put things together and understand. Then there's different types of vipassana. There's these four different types. And I think I'll wait for the for us to go through the root text to explain these a little bit. Then there's classifications of them. There's these different schemes for classifying, uh, sort of schemes of how to do vipassana. The four types of vipassana investigating the essence. And uh, if you're well uh, familiar with the profound treasury, you might recognize that Trump Rinpoche goes through a series of four types of vipassana that vaguely have these similar names, the three gateways. Unfortunately, he does not explicitly go through these, as far as I can tell, or have found. And then the six, what are called investigations, in this translation from Grimshaw calls them the six discoveries. The six discoveries are summed up into three aspects, the meaning, mode of being, and varieties, which is an indication by uh, John Grimshaw that, that he sort of seems to like this version here. Is what I'm gathering from him, summing them up. Then he says there's also a twofold condensation on your window of Vipassana, which is the preparatory or analytic Vipassana. Uh, and then there's actual or non-fluctuating or non-analytical Vipassana. And there's the way to meditate. We analyze selflessness by means of superior knowledge. We cut through misconceptions regarding the nature of our experience, regarding the objects, qualities, the object of our meditation. And then we rest in a state free from mental fabrications. And that, that right there sums up the practice of Vipassana, but in a way that's probably not practically practical enough or instructional enough. But that's the general framework is to focus on selflessness by means of superior knowledge, by means of prajna. That means hearing, contemplating, and meditating. We cut through misconceptions. To do that, you have to identify your misconceptions and uproot them one by one, or maybe in large clumps. And now it's just sort of take a bunch of at a time. And uh, then let go once you've uprooted a misconception and see if you can rest and stay free from mental fabrication. See how long that lasts. When it dissolves, you repeat. The stages of the actual meditation, the nature of the percept. Percept is not really a very common word in English usage. Percept, I believe, uh, is a sort of weird word that, that indicates the object of perception, meaning any object of perception as an object of perception. First, we understand objects of perception to be empty, like space. And then we examine the perceiver as to its origin, abiding, shape, and so forth. And then that knowledge that has arisen through these two activities of Vipassana is called discriminating knowledge. And that knowledge itself vanishes in the expanse of non-finding like a fire produced by rubbing wood, burns up the wood, and the wood and the fire then vanish. 
so we don't keep on analyzing endlessly but we experience the meaning understood through the analysis and we let go we let it burn itself up and then again we rest free of grasping and so this is this is really the heart of the practice and we'll try to or these two sections and we'll try to focus in on these using whatever sources i can find to gain an understanding of what Vipassana practice is in a way that hopefully you can do it at home on your own. The measure of accomplishment, John Lukonsha says, is suppleness. Interestingly enough, suppleness. I thought that was an accomplishment of yoga practice, but apparently it's Shamatha and Vipassana. Then here's the union. The actual method of training in the union. Um, I, I don't know how, what this adds, the union itself, and then the fruition of those. Then it goes through some supplementary issues. What are the different categories of shamatha and vipassana? I said that all practices are summed up into shamatha and vipassana. So what are those some of those other practices that are really shamatha? And what are some what are some of the examples of vipassana practice, different ones in the world? There's two ways to accomplish shamatha vipassana. There's analytical meditation and there's stabilizing meditation. It's a very confusing topic, so he addresses that a little bit. And uh, we'll look at how that's addressed by Trump Rinpoche and others in the tradition. And then he gives us a set of um, three stages for the practice. And it seems to be three stages for the practice overall. First, by childlike concentration, one perceives signs such as smoke, etc. Do you see smoke? Do you guys see smoke when you meditate? Maybe if you meditate around a fire, you might see smoke. It's incense. Incense. Oh, very smart. By the discrimination of phenomena. The sameness of pairs of opposites is realized, so one taste. And supreme concentration is accomplished, whatever that means, by focusing on suchness. Do you, does anyone have suchness? Does anyone have any suchness tonight? Can anybody bring any? Show us. Can you show us some suchness? Not tonight. Not tonight. Okay, next week, can you bring some? All yeah. phenomena... Thank you. Are seen to be emptiness, which in turn is realized to be peace by nature. So that's the outline. That's the material to be covered. A lot of interesting stuff in there, I think. Hopefully I've whet your appetite. And now we'll go through, here's the root text. So this gives the same material in the very pithy statements. I think the repetition is helpful. I hope you do too and don't mind it. The necessity of practicing samadhi. First, the samadhi to be practiced, one should, should gain certainty in both shamatha and vipassana, which comprise the ocean of samadhis of both the greater and lesser vehicles. And by the way, for those of you that are new to the Rime Shedra, um, the basic style here is uh, one of what uh, I think is called close reading or maybe slow reading it, something like that. 
where uh, I basically read through the material that we go through each for each class and uh, try to add some funny comments here and there to make it so that it's not too mind-numbing and you don't all fall asleep. But otherwise, I, I really don't add anything. Just to create a context for you to read these amazing classics, which is worth it in itself. So, and uh, you, yes, ma'am. Share this root text with us on the email. I did. Yeah, you have this this in, in one of the two PDFs I sent. Okay. Finding, finding. I know email is like a forest. It's just right. Okay. Amazing. So. Which gains certainty in both Shamatha and Vipassana, which comprise the ocean of samadhi, so both the greater and lesser vehicles, the Hinayana Mahayana. The essential nature of them, and here's here's like uh, maybe we should have a drum roll or something. People are a lot of people tonight were saying, "What is Vipassana? How does it differ from Shamatha?" And here is your answer: Shamatha is one pointedness. And Vipassana is individual analysis, which fully discriminates phenomena. Clear as, <laughs> very clear. So, you know, that may be different than um, what you've heard before about Vipassana, particularly if you've read a lot of uh, teachings by Trump and Bache. Uh, you may be much more familiar with the presentation of Vipassana as um, awareness, maybe panoramic awareness. And so for uh, those of us that have read Trump Rinpoche and uh, consider us students of Trump Rinpoche and practice in his tradition, this has been uh, an, uh, sort of a, an enigma for many years. How do you practice Vipassana? Because anybody that uh, studies Trump Rinpoche's method and then reads anything outside of Trump Rinpoche's method finds that uh, Vipassana is presented very differently in other traditions. Individual analysis, which fully discriminates phenomena. And Trump Rinpoche's panoramic awareness, Vipassana, there's no discrimination. There's no analysis. So, how do we reconcile these two ways of presenting Vipassana? That is the great challenge, basically. And uh, and when you when you survey the field of Vipassana uh, in Buddhism, there's uh, the the Theravadan version that's become very popular today. Many centers like Vipassana centers teach what they call Vipassana, which is the Pali version of the word Vipassana, which is a Sanskrit word. And it's different, again, from panoramic awareness, and it's different from individual analysis, which fully discriminates phenomena. But if you study the Indian and Tibetan Mahayana Buddhist tradition, you'll find that the basic way of presenting Vipassana is an analytical investigation. And so how does Trump Rinpoche's presentation compare to that? Why didn't he teach this version? Or did he? That's the question, the $64,000 question that we'll delve into in this course. Etymology, having calm distraction when completely abides, 
So that's the uh, etymology of sham uh, atta in Sanskrit. And the superior nature is seen with the eyes of wisdom, vipassana. The necessity of birth, just as an example of the bright oil lamp not blown by the wind, one realizes the true nature by bringing both together. So bright oil lamp not blown by the wind is shamatha. This is the condition created by shamatha. And through that, one can then realize the true nature when we bring shamatha vipassana together. What is the order of, of practice? Do we start with shamatha move to vipassana or vice versa? The preferred order is from the support to that which is supported. The support is shamatha. Shamatha provides the support and vipassana is that which is supported. Derek, can I ask um, if it would be uh, overthinking things to take that idea of support and support it and compare it to other texts where we've seen that referenced and draw connections between them? Like yeah. in Sure. That where, where where else have you seen it? Yeah. In um in uh you know finding rest. <laughs> yeah, uh, and the one from last semester. Precious treasury. Yeah, precious treasury. Um, you know, there was a lot about support and supported and going into great detail uh into what those were. So if if one were to kind of take this idea here and link it back to that, would that be overthinking it or you won't find that they're always talking about the same thing. Uh, in many places, what you're referring to, I believe, is a way of con uh, contextualizing the entire universe as being the environment and its containers, its contents, rather, sorry, which which refers to the, uh, the, uh, the universe and the beings within it. And, and sometimes that's also referred to as the support and the supported. Right. So it's okay. not always going to be a, a, the same apples to apples sort of thing. Got it. But it's, it's an interesting uh, way of expanding your flexibility and understanding the terms. Shamatan, the prerequisites to rely on the conditions for shamatas to reject everything unfavorable. It's pretty absolute. To stay in a favorable area, where is that today? To have few desires. Home sweet home. Home sweet home, okay. There you go. Yeah, that's that's a, that's true. To have few desires. That's a hard one. To be content. To adopt pure ethics and to give up distraction, discursive thoughts. That's tough. When classified, it comprises these different types, which I went through a little bit earlier in the outline. Derek. Yes. Um, yes the, the, um, sorry, could you go back, scroll up a little bit? Um, the, the part about um, to adopt pure ethics. Yeah. That's interesting. Does that have to do with intention? I believe so. Say more. You know, like, why are we doing this? Yeah, why? So, like, the better your intention or the, the more Mahayana, then, you know, the, that's sort of part of the view, too, right? 
It is, yeah. yeah. You know, th- this is uh, within the overall Buddhist scheme of the path of Buddhism or the overall practice of Buddhism, which is described as having three interlocking parts or three interlocking aspects, discipline, otherwise known as ethics, or activities that support ethical behavior or that demonstrate ethical behavior or pure ethics, and then meditation and wisdom. And they need to work together to uh, practice one without the others. It doesn't really help. Like a three-legged stool. Totally like a three-legged stool. That's right. Is the first one Sheila? First one in Sanskrit is Sheila. That's right. And then the Samadhi and Prajna, the three, sometimes called the three wheels of the Dharma, the tricycle. But yeah, adopting pure ethics. That's a very important one. You know, the idea is like, if, if you constantly uh, hurt people, do mean things, it's very hard to, uh, it's sort of like, why are you meditating? Uh, hopefully you're meditating in order to cause less harm. Uh, but in the meantime, it's very hard to calm your mind because you're plagued by all the negative things that you did. Because as we all know, what happens in meditation is everything you've ever done and experienced, unfortunately, comes up when you're meditating. <laughs> uh, let's see. The posture, the eightfold posture. We're mostly familiar with the sevenfold, so we'll see what the eighth, eighth fold is the eighth way of folding the body. And then we have uh, the methods for settling the mind, the objects of observation. We have these pervasive objects, purifying deeds, skillful and purifying afflictions. And I'm going I'm to take a, a rain check on these, as it's called, and uh, wait till we go through a couple of readings to, to show what these are, because it's a little bit convoluted for tonight. First... Settling with a concrete support, uh, we focus on an impure and a pure support. Impure support is like a pebble or a stick or a piece of money or cheese or something like that. A pure support is an uh, image of the Dharma, image of the Buddha, image of the Dharma, and image of the Sangha is a pure support. Settling the mind without concrete support refers to settling the mind on individual parts on the complete form, outwardly and inwardly, on the body, and on that which depends on the body. Eric, uh, you are saying settling, but the text says setting. I just want Thank you. Setting the mind. I keep saying settling, don't I? And is it setting or settling? I think it's setting. Yeah, thank you for correcting me. Thank you for uh, helping me out there. So you're you're working with your mind as if it's uh, something you can set somewhere. Like you set it on the concrete support. You put it on the ped- on the the mantle over the fireplace, <laughs> and then you uh, you put it in midair without concrete support. And it's an interesting list. This list. You might think that uh, many of these are concrete, the body and so forth. And there's a nuance there that uh, we'll get into later. Setting the mind in the essential nature. If only we knew what the essential nature was, then maybe we could do that. 
remaining absorbed in the essential nature waves of thought having dissolved into the ocean of the all basis, otherwise known as the alia. Jared, a question. Um, the, you have without concrete support, but in some traditions they talk about shamatha without support as opposed to without concrete support. So does, does that, it doesn't seem like that's in any of these three necessarily. Yeah, that's correct. There, there are other schemes to this and the uh, settling the mind without support at all would basically be a, uh, similar to this or identical. You, you to, think it's C? Okay. Yeah, because yeah. in those schemes, they have uh, settling the mind um, without concrete support and then they have settling the mind with uh, in the mind is is the subtle version of a support that's not concrete. Yeah, because it seems like sometimes they, I mean, they still make a distinction, at least in teachings I've received, that shamatha without support is not the same as pure nature of mind. But anyway, well, different. Well, this, this doesn't say the pure nature of mind. This says settling the mind in the essential nature. As opposed to the as opposed to the mind, so I'm saying that settling in the mind would be a, a type of support. Right, but isn't that what this C is? No, it's it's not a support. The essential nature does not function as a support. Okay, so then I guess that would sort of be it. Okay, anyway, I guess it's just different schemes. Yeah, slightly yeah. different schemes. Thanks. Thank you. Here are the experiences that we all have from meditation. Uh, first, we experience difficulties in meditation, which are the, the five faults summed up into five major, five major uh, difficulties that we have in the practice. And the tradition gives us eight antidotes to dealing with those. There's three types of laziness. I love that. <laughs> three different types of laziness. Forgetting the instructions is the next problem. Forgetting that we're meditating. Laxity or dullness. You know, we know we're meditating. We're actually there meditating, but our mind is getting very dull. Or agitation. It's like physical, mental agitation all over the place. Each with two aspects. What's called coarse, subtle. Uh, and then there's the problem of non-application of the technique where we just are there, but we're not we're too busy to apply the technique <laughs> we're too busy to label thoughts and come back to the breath and then there's overzealousness too much application we're like too rigid you know so this is the old one of uh, tuning the string and uh, not too tight not too loose <clears throat> the antidotes are these aspiration um aspiring to uh calm our mind exertion Diligence, i.e. diligence, faith, having trust in the practice, having confidence in the practice that, that the practice actually works. Uh, and suppleness, pliancy. Suppleness in this case is sort of like a type of uh, familiarity with the technique where it becomes second nature. Instead of having to remember what to do, all of these are uh, antidotes to the three types of uh, laziness. Uh, the samadhi of not forgetting, 
is the antidote to forgetting. And then uh, examination is the antidote to laxity and agitation. And that term examination is uh, sometimes uh, translated as uh, awareness by Trungpa Rinpoche. Uh, and uh, samadhi of not forgetting is translated as mindfulness, i.e. remembering what you're doing as mindfulness. So here's mindfulness and then awareness. Also investigation or um, some similar such words. Application is the antidote to non-application and equanimity is the antidote to over-application. The six powers and so forth. Uh, the nine stages arise um, through the power of listening. These are the six powers. Listening, reflecting, mindfulness, introspection, effort, and familiarity. And those powers are what drive us to overcome the obstacles. So the powers are the driving force in the antidotes. So listening is the power driving the uh, first four antidotes, uh, listening and reflecting. Mindfulness is the same as the antidote. Introspection is the same as examination. Effort is the same as application. And familiarity is a way of understanding equanimity. Equanimity is we're familiar with the, the meditative state and we don't need to tinker with it any further. And these correspond to four stages of mental engagement with the object of meditation that's forcible where we have to drag our mind back to the object, the breath, rope it, rope it in, reel it in, hook it with the fishing rod and reel it in, bring it back. And then interrupted is when Sometimes it stays there on its own and then it drifts and we have to forcibly bring it back. But other times it stays there. Uninterrupted means that with, with continuous effort, it stays on the object. Our mind stays in the present, which is really the object of meditation is the present, which is how Trungpa Rinpoche presents the object of, of mindfulness. And then the last of the four mental engagements is spontaneous. We spontaneously engage with the object through familiarity. We're so familiar with being with it that our mind just goes towards it. We don't need to be even uh, consciously doing it. And we have the five experiences of agitation or the waterfall. Attainment is making it through the waterfall. Familiarity is a slowly moving um, river. Stability is when you get to the mouth of the river. So this image of a of water moving down the mountains from a waterfall to a fast moving river, to a slow moving river, to a very state um, a motionless river at the mouth, and then the ocean is the perfection. Measure of accomplishment is uh, for shamatas when suppleness is brought to perfection. There's mental and physical suppleness. So our body feels light and our mind is agile. And we're present, joyful, and uh, relaxed. And we're not filled with discursiveness. So these signs are bliss, joy, clarity. Our mind is clear. We know what's going on. And no concepts of designations. As if merged with spaces, we're not filled with uh, discursive thought. 
that's the foundation of all the concentrations taught in the sutras and tantras and suppresses all sufferings and afflictions. Therefore, shamatha is necessary. Vipassana, the prerequisites we talked about, rely on a wise person and seek the view through hearing and contemplating. Here we have the types of Vipassana, the non-Buddhist contemplation of the peaceful and coarse levels. And th this scheme is a little bit complicated, so we'll go through it a couple of times, first here and then later in more detail, and I'll rattle some things off about these stages here. The peaceful and coarse levels, this refers to the, uh, the meditation of the absorption states, absorption meditation, the trance meditation where in order to achieve the first absorption and in order to sustain it, in order to go from the first to the second and the second to the third and so forth, one has to do an analytical, go through an analytical process of understanding in what way is my mind discursive or not in absorption and identify what are the qualities of my mind that will lead me into absorption. And we focus on those aspects of our mind and we let go of the other aspects of the mind that that take us away from absorption and there's a list of five factors that uh, cultivate absorption states and we progressively let go of each one of the five as we progress through the the four levels of the absorptions and then uh, we do a similar process with the formless absorptions vipassana for shravakas and pratyeka buddhas is the contemplation of the Four Noble Truths and their attributes. Each of them has four attributes, creating a system of 16 aspects of the Four Noble Truths, which are contemplated as Vipassana by the Shravakas and Pratyeka Buddhas. And this is a, a technical explanation of what we see in the Vipassana tradition today and the insight centers where they focus on the three marks of existence, permanence, suffering, and selflessness. Henrietta. The first one says non-Buddhist contemplations. Yeah, so the absorption states are common to both Buddhists and non-Buddhists, but they're more popular, in, at least in the time of the Buddha, with the non-Buddhists. Like Hindu? Like Hindus, yeah, including okay. Hindus. But it can, there's many other contemplative traditions that right. accomplish those sort of states of, of mind. But Okay. Uh, basically, being a Buddhist means that you understand that those absorptions are not the be-all and the end-all. Um, and then there's the Paramitayana. Paramitayana is a reference to the Mahayana, the path that traverses the Paramitas. And uh, in, the, in the Mahayana, the Vipassana is contemplating emptiness of its two types, the emptiness of the self and the emptiness of persons. And in the mantra and the Vajrayana, it's this is taught to be endowed with bliss. That sounds like fun. Wonder how that happens. Uh, so contemplating emptiness with bliss is the is the Vajrayana version of Vipassana. The common preparatory stages are similar to those of the mundane path. However, those who have entered the Montreal and others do not strive for them. So what are these common preparatory stages? We'll go through that as well. It's a series of seven contemplations that are the preparation for 
when he says mundane, that's sort of a reference to non-Buddhists. So these are the meditations that lead to other states of existence within samsara. And we have the classifications. Here it gets a little bit obscure. I'm just going to skim through these because we'll, we'll go into these in more depth. The four types of apostasy investigating the essence, discriminating fully, discriminating, examining, analyzing. That's one scheme. The three gateways of Vipassana, designations, thorough investigation, individual analysis. Basically a jumble of words, all sort of on the, of the type of, you know, analyzing and discriminating or in, intellectualizing, interestingly enough. So how does this compare to panoramic awareness again? And the six investigations, meaning. What are the meaning of words? What is a thing? That's one of my favorite. Character. Um, this is not like in theater particularly, but what's the character of phenomena? Is a phenomena uh, generally characterized or is it specifically characterized? That obviously is a, a ter uh, terminology from uh, that, in, that refers to some significant way of understanding different types of phenomena. The direction. And here, direction basically refers to, does it lead towards enlightenment or away from enlightenment? Time refers to the three times, or maybe the fourth time as well. And then reasoning. How do we use reasoning to understand nature of reality? There's four ways. The reasoning of interdependence or dependence, of function, cause, and result, of logical proof. Using syllogisms. I know a lot of you like to use syllogisms. But I'm going to not dive into syllogisms in this class, if that's okay with you. Good. And of nature. I'm totally into nature. I love going hiking and being out in the woods. And uh, so I, I'm going to focus on nature, the, the Pashna of nature. Through these six, discrimination is applied to each and every phenomenon, from form to omniscience. And that's a lot of phenomena. I mean, there's a lot of phenomena in the world. And if you can apply it individually to each and every one of them, that's going to take quite a long time. So there must be some shorthand way of doing this, I hope. That was meant to be humorous, by the way. Just checking in with you all. And then they sum up to six, because six is a big number. If it's too many. So they sum it up into three. The meaning. What is, what is the meaning? The meaning of words. How do words convey meaning? Why is that important? What is what is the the whole um, notion of sounds conveying meaning? Why is that important? It's important because words are uh, sounds that are inanimate objects, and we, through our conceptual process, our conceptual mind, uh, assign meaning to sounds. And so the sounds themselves have absolutely no meaning. But we, have, we live in a world of conceptual designation. And separating the designation, the concept, from the basis of designation, in this case, a sound, is a very profound process. Thirdly, what is the mode of being? Is it relative truth? Is it an ultimate truth? And so forth. Is it a generally characterized or specifically characterized phenomenon? Is it a conceptualized idea or is it an actual 
specific instance of something? And then what are the varieties of those? How do those then play out in, the, in our world of experience? This can be dense, condensed into two types of vipassana, preparatory analytical vipassana and actual or non-fluctuating. So did Trump Rinpoche teach actual and skip the analytic and just say, oh, you guys, just do the, the actual Vipassana. You don't need the analytical. Just do the non-analytical. Just go right there. You guys are all advanced Westerners. Right? Well, he did have a tendency to go with fruitional approach. Certainly did. Well put. Well said. Thank you. Be very much focused on the essence of things. Didn't have a lot of time. Didn't, didn't put a lot of effort into such details so perhaps this is a glimpse into what he was doing this this uh, way of condensing condensing things into two the way to meditate the way to meditate is to actually analyze selflessness so we're focusing on the person here the emptiness of the person by means of prajna superior knowledge and then we rest in a state free from mental fabrications. The idea is that you look for the self and hopefully you don't find the self and then you rest in not finding. In order to look for the self, you have to know what you're looking for and where to look for it. So it takes a little preparation to uh, focus on the self. And then there's different ways to rest, believe it or not, in the state free from mental fabrications. But non-analytical, this is probably the most obscure statement in the whole text. Non-analytical images are the basis for analysis. What the fuck does that mean? How the hell am I going to bag this Vipassana? I have no idea what that means. <laughs> Having identified the particular object, one cuts through misconceptions regarding its qualities. Tell you a funny story. I, I became friends with uh, Trollope Rinpoche, who's an amazing teacher that died way too early, a few years ago. And uh, early on in becoming a friend with him, I sent him this text and I said, Rinpoche, please, what does this mean? Non-analytical images are the basis for analysis. What the heck does that mean? And he said, well, let's get together for lunch. And I thought, oh, great, cool. So we met at this restaurant for lunch back in the days when you could meet in person in public places. And uh, we started talking about the treasury of knowledge and shamatha vipassana and things. And he says, oh, somebody somebody actually just just uh, sent me that this a translation of this text because I had sent it with uh, my question. Somebody just sent me a translation of this text because I asked him the question, we're sitting there, what does it mean? He says, you know, somebody just sent me a translation of this text. <laughs> I said, yeah, that was me. <laughs> he goes, oh, you're the guy in the email. <laughs> I thought that was pretty funny. Anyway, having identified the particular object, one question. Didn't he answer? <laughs> he did, he did. I, I should, yeah, I'm keeping you in the suspenders, <laughs> aren't I? Non-analytical images. It means, for one, it means images that have not been analyzed. So you don't want to analyze things that you've already analyzed because you've already analyzed. You want to analyze fresh, unanalyzed things. It's more exciting. It's more adventurous. 
But non-analytical images means basically anything that you experience through your senses or your actually your mind also, whatever arises in your mind is a non-analytical image. Any object that comes to your mind, a table, a chair, you know, we were in this restaurant, a plate, a glass, artwork, um, uh, space, time, world peace, you know, concepts and uh, so-called sense objects. All of them are images that arise in our mind. Also the breath. The breath is the object of our shamatha. And then in Vipassana, we can look at the breath. What is the breath? What is this thing that I call the breath? In what way does the sound that I make that sounds like this, breath, how does that relate to the thing that the movement of air in and out of my body? And where is the breath? Does it include my body? Does it include the space? How do we delineate the breath from the rest of the equation? Is the breath one thing? Is it many things, you know, and so on and so forth? So that's the analysis of non-analytical images. You take simple things. So you don't analyze um, analytical things like uh, um, the speed of light or uh, what is it, general relativity or things like that. But, but it does include, I think what I understand is that it's both generally and specifically characterized phenomena. Um, it, well, it's tricky in that generally characterized phenomena appear as images in your mind. So you would, you would analyze the thought of general relativity as opposed to the object general relativity, if that makes any sense. That's way more complicated, though. So it's much easier to analyze thoughts about so-called like concrete things. So specifically characterized is preferred, but because what I mean, somehow in what you said, it seemed like you were including generally characterized things. But maybe I yeah, I, I was being a little bit inaccurate in that if if you're if the object of your thought is a generally characterized phenomena, that thought produces an image of the generally characterized phenomena. And that image is actually a specifically characterized form. So that's sort of convoluted and way. No, no, that's clear. That's clear. So, so in other words, you really are, it really would be limited to specifically it, characterized phenomena. It would, yes. Okay, thank way. you. That helps. Thanks. Yep. Uh, I happen to have the other translation here. Yeah, what does he say by Richard Barron in the Treasury of Knowledge? Thank you, Eric. That's cool. Non-conceptual images. Ah, uh, that's great. So yes, specifically characterized. And any false assumptions about them are eliminated. Having identified that object, one cuts through misconceptions regarding its qualities. That's great that you have that. Um, we're the next very next section. Let's read through together because uh, I believe the reason I'm using this version is, is based on this section. So the actual meditation is, first, <clears throat> we understand the nature of the percept, the object to be under, to be empty like space. And then the perceiver is analyzed or examined as to origin abiding. So where is the perceiver? Where is the mind? And any of us that have done any uh, Mahamuja 
uh, investigations, this will be familiar, like looking at the mind. Where do thoughts come from? Where do they abide? Where do they go? What is the mind? Does it have a shape? Does it have a color? Does it have a, a size? And so forth. Discriminating knowledge itself that arises from these analyses or examinations, um, like a fire produced by rubbing wood, vanishes in the expanse of not finding. So the object is to not find uh, whatever we're examining in each case. Like the breath, when you look for the breath, you try to figure out where is the breath, what is the breath, how do we delineate it? It's very difficult to find a discrete thing that is the breath. And so the idea of breath then dissolves into the expanse of not finding. And then having done that, instead of like panicking, saying, oh, I'm out of breath now because I don't know what the hell breath is, we just rest like go free of grasping. So read, uh, Eric, please read uh, Richard Barron's version of that. Oh, uh, oh wait, um, it's hard to say because it's all arranged differently. What am I? What yeah. am I reading? It's right after the, the right after that six. This is much clunkier. I see why you're going with your. Yeah, this, this paragraph was is a key paragraph, and I didn't like his version. The nature of what is perceived is known to be empty like space. What is to be examined, the origin, location, shape, and so forth of the perceiving consciousness and the discerning function itself are like fire sticks consumed by fire. Nothing is found for things dissolve into basic space and one rests without any fixated perception. Oops. Thanks. Sort of. Yeah, similar. It's a little bit clunky, as you said. Yeah. When suppleness is obtained, Vipassana is accomplished. Uh, we're a little bit over time. So I'll just go through this quickly. Madhyamakas differ with respect to the method of development. They agree on what is to be developed, developed namely Shamatha, Vipassana, and the two together. And these three are to be practiced in succession. And the main point is non-distraction. When practicing meditation with designations, the full discrimination of phenomena focuses on the images arising out of shamatha. So when practicing meditation with designation, with support of any kind, the full discrimination of phenomena, the investigation stage of any of the Vipassanas mentioned above, which fall into the category of preparatory or analytical, we focus on the images arising out of shamatha. In our shamatha, we think of something to eat. We think of something to do. We analyze those. We think of the body. We analyze that. We think of the breath. We think of our emotions. We think of the past and future and so forth. Um, this, this is union. By doing this, by doing the, by doing that analysis within shamatha, when non-conceptual vipassana is attained, non, i.e., non-fluctuating, non-analytical, where we've done the analysis, we've not found anything, and we let go into space, they, the two shamatha vipassana, become one essence, and thus they are unified. This is the genuine samadhi by the perfection of which non-abiding nirvana, freedom from the bondage of existence, and peace is attained. So this is a reference to the Mahayana way of understanding nirvana, which is not based on 
whether you have a body or not, as in the Hinayana, so-called stages of uh, understanding of nirvana. So what are the categories of shamatha? The meditations on ugliness, love, maitri, compassion, the cycles of breath, doing different breathing practices, the nine breaths and so forth, pratyahara's uh, breath retention, the focus on the nadis, the pranas, as in tantric practices, the generating phase of Vajrayana practice, the creation or visualization phase, the mantra recitation, and then resting the mind naturally, as we saw above, in the essence. All of these are but methods for developing concentration of shamatha, interestingly. Analysis of these tongue twister terms, I'll try to say definiendum, definition, and example. That's obscure, huh? And of general and specific character, dependent arising. Five reasons. I'll give you five reasons why things are empty. Pointing out the nature of mind by means of scripture, reason, and spiritual influence. <laughs> That's dangerous. And symbols. All of these are methods for developing supreme, discriminating knowledge in accordance with the faculties of individuals. So those are types of Vipassana. Shamatha and Vipassana can be accomplished equally, either by analytical or stabilizing meditation. This is an interesting thing. Generally, we think, oh, analytical meditation, after reading this, must be Vipassana. And stabilizing meditation must be Vipassana. But both shamatha and vipassana can be accomplished by both analytical and stabilizing types of meditation. Here's the stages. Childlike concentration, dis uh, discrimination of phenomena. We see the sameness of pairs. We went through this earlier. Yeah. Yes, ma'am. This completes uh, the first part, being the uh, explanation of the stages of meditation of shamatha and vipassana, the basis for all samadhis. Do you need the text for your question? Yeah, go back up. Uh... Let me see. Um, well, no. Um, I, the question was just something we just read. Uh, the, having to do with uh, the... Uh, oh, now I've forgotten the, the quote. But anyway, um, it's, it's, I got the sense they were saying that he, this was saying that um, the, the, you, can, you have a menu of options and it depends on the the uh, the person's ability or the person's uh, where did I see that in yeah. Brief, in, yeah. brief, in, in accordance. accordance with the faculties. So it, it, is is that the way to look at it, or is there a progression that is outlined for everyone? Uh, no, there's no one standard fits everyone. It, it varies based on people's predilection. Um, you know, some of these are much more intellectual, definiendum, obviously, specific, general, uh, general, specific, the five reasons. Those are very intellectually challenging. Pointing out the nature of mind is not intellectually uh, rigorous. Um, so those would be the sort of one way, at least, of characterizing those those variety of approaches into two sort of main types. Okay, thanks. So, um, 
those are those are the things that we'll dive into. Here we'll we'll dive into some of these obscure things. Uh, we'll dive into this a little bit. Common preparatory stages. We'll dive into the classifications of vipassana. We'll dive into the uh, the way to meditate of vipassana, and then the actual meditation of vipassana. Those are the places that we'll dive into. So, if that interests you, uh, please stay with us. If not, uh, if that's not of interest and it's too like obscure and intellectual or whatever, just let me know. Happy to refund any monies. And uh, no, no, uh, uh, no harm. No, uh, no offense if anyone wants to, is not into this sort of level of presentation. Questions, comments? I had another question. <laughs> and we had a... Always full of questions. So um, in terms of the books themselves and the readings, um, uh, are you going to be yes. assigning specific... I'll be providing a source book that that compiles those excerpts of which I gave you huge long uh, lists of different texts. I'll compile them into a into a manageable source book that will then go through with a syllabus that'll say read these for each week. Okay. So every reading will be in the source book, but then you're suggesting we buy the books beyond that. So so that we can support those authors. Totally. But, yeah, there's, five, okay, got it. Got there's it. no direct, direct link between buying the books and the readings for this class. Other than that, I'm excerpting a lot of readings from those books, and I feel, uh, you know, like karmic uh, debt to those uh, royalty holders and publishers to... Um, otherwise support them. You know, if you, if you had to get the books for every one of the sources we'll go through, that would be a lot more than those five books. And it's just little excerpts from many of them. And many of them are extremely obscure things. So, yeah. so they will all be in a source book that I'll hopefully uh, provide you in a few days, a couple of days. How's that? I'll at least give you next week's reading very soon. How's that? And we'll be doing some practice during classes too. Yeah, excellent. Yeah, we should do, uh, well, we'll sit in the beginning for a half hour. And uh, I, I was hoping that uh, we could go through the different topics and the meditations at the beginning of class in some way, shape, or form. How's that? If you have suggestions on that, I'm open. Widely open to suggestion. Normally we just sit silently, but uh, maybe we can use the uh, the material and the readings each week. Pick one of them or something that's very pithy and use that for meditation. Do a little bit of guided meditation. That's a great suggestion. Thank you, Anya. Anything else?
very well. Let's dedicate and uh, close. Find its merit, may all of human missions may defeat the enemy wrongdoing from the stormy waves of birth, old age, sickness, and death, from the ocean of samsara. May I free all beings by the confidence of the old son of the grievous, may the lotus garden of the weakness wisdom below, may the dark gigants of centuries be dispelled. May all beings enjoy profound, brilliant glory. Thank you. Thank nice you. Nice to see you all. Thank nice you all for joining. You. Very, very Thank much. You. Thanks. Thanks. Uh, Thank you. Thanks. Thank you. Hi, Derek. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Derek. Bye-bye. Thank you. Thank you very much.